Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. And so here goes another momentous episode of EMS on the Mountain and Mike and his technological incompetence. Today, we're joined with Liz Hall, National Park Service Ranger, and she's going to talk to us about a lot of things. Liz, please introduce yourself. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. So, yeah. Hey. <laughs> so, yeah, my name is Liz Hall, and I'm the emergency manager here at the Smokies. I've uh, been here since 2020. Prior to being here, I was at Yellowstone National Park. It was in Alaska before that, and Yosemite and Zion. So I've kind of had the opportunity to bounce around to a few different places. But my job here is that I run the EMS search and rescue and preventative search and rescue programs for the Smokies. So I'm a paramedic. I'm a type one federal law enforcement officer and have a lot of other collateral duties as well. That's the main idea. As all park service rangers do. Excellent. All right. So as Liz is, and this is why we brought Liz on, she's not just only a paramedic and a law enforcement ranger. She's also a tech rescue qualified person, comes teaches with Mike and I once a year with the rest of the monkeys. But we want to talk to Liz about your program, right? Your EMS and your rescue stuff, because you are kind of a unique model within the NPS and that you actually have some dedicated resources. And it's not just tertiary response from anybody that's available stuff. So if you wouldn't Basically, mind. Basically, just... let's make everything I said in the last episode make me a liar. How's that oh, It didn't make us a liar because we said with rare exception. That's, uh-huh. that's true. That's true. And, mm-hmm. this, and this program is the one of the rare exceptions. You can absolutely get paid to do search and rescue and EMS for the National Park Service. Full Contrary time. Nothing but that. Episode. That's all I do. Everything. Full time. That's all I do ever. Well, doing preventative search and rescue. And then when the tones go off, then yes. you're doing EMS. Oh, so she had. There it is. Okay. Right. So almost. So Liz, if you yeah. would please tell us about your program and you know how you're staffed, how it operates and things like that. Yeah. So It's a little bit of a complex answer. We're in a time of change right now. So up until this year, I've had two seasonal preventative search and rescue rangers. So those folks are out on the trails, visiting with the public, talking about basic safety messaging. And we know that we have very high visitation. We have about 14 million people a year come to the Smokies. And from that, we have a lot of folks that maybe don't have, have very much hiking experience, don't know that bringing water with them is important, don't know what proper footwear looks like, don't know that they need to bring a headlamp with them if they start a hike after four o'clock in the afternoon. So things like that, we do a lot of basic education. But that being said, we do have 105 backcountry EMS calls a year. We do have an additional 200 front country EMS calls each year as well. So when the tones go off, these folks are our first responders to head out to those incidents. So my staff members are typically ALS providers, so an AEMT or higher. Up until this year, I've had two seasonal preventative search and rescue rangers that were ALS providers, advanced life support providers at the AEMT level or higher. And... The primary purpose of those rangers was to go out and do education with the general public at the trailheads, talking about basic safety messaging, like bring water with you when you go on a hike. A lot of our visitors don't recognize the need to bring water. What does appropriate footwear look like? Do you know that a headlamp is important to bring with you if you're going on a hike? Because our number one cause for actual searches in the park is darkness without a light. That's 30, I think it's 32% of our search and rescue incidents is darkness without a light. So um, your cell phone is not a light, by the way. We'll talk about that later. Um, so they, 
listening to a lot of education at the trailheads. But that being said, when the tones go off for an EMS call or a search and rescue call, these folks are first up to respond to those incidents. So we have about 105 backcountry incidents, EMS calls or searches every year. And then we also have an additional 200 front country EMS calls every year. So all that being said, those have been two seasonal GS7 positions in my operation. And we are actually changing how the whole EMS world in the smoke is structured. And we're going to have seven permanent staff members now doing preventative search and rescue and being leaders in our EMS and search and rescue program. So these two seasonal positions plus an additional seven permanent staff members is the current plan. So it's an exciting time in EMS. What's preventative search and rescue? That's a really good question. Um, so it was something that was <laughs> That's why I back. asked it. <laughs> no, it's almost like you run a podcast and know to ask these questions. So it was something that was developed back in Grand Canyon in 1996. And it was a reaction to a really bad search and rescue year for them. They had, I believe, five heat fatalities that year and over 400 SAR incidents, search and rescue incidents in the park that year. So they said a lot of this could have been prevented if we had just like educated the general public about how to hydrate, how to nourish themselves, how to appropriately eat when they're in the backcountry. So let's send some folks out on the trails. So preventative search and rescue is truly the educational component of just talking to the public about how do you hike safely? What things do you need to bring with you? What behaviors do you need to be doing when you're out there to be safe um, and enjoy your hike while you're in the park? So a lot of one-on-one coaching with our visitors. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I already know the answer to this because I know the answer at the park Mike and I support, but have you seen the PSAR program actually beneficially reduce the number of incidents with the visitors in your park? I know you're relatively new there, Yeah, but I'm sure so you have the numbers. I do, but it's also, can, it's compounded with an increase in visitation. So I came here in 2020. Preventative search and rescue was happening here in the park prior to my arrival, but it was just wasn't branded like that. I mean, we talked to all of our visitors about safety and how to hike properly and all those things, but it just wasn't branded preventative search and rescue. This is a nationwide push to increase the visibility of preventative search and rescue rangers. I'm actually on a task force right now to build more positions within the service as a whole. So it's a nationwide push and it was brought here in 2020 with my arrival. I'm the very first emergency manager in the Smokies. So it's kind of been this, this growing thing. And that being said, I came right in the middle of the pandemic and our <laughs> visitation increased significantly. Yeah, And I would argue anecdotally that our population and our demographics who are visiting the park changed significantly. They became a less, they didn't have as much background in how to hike the the outdoorsy types. No. Yeah. They're not our traditional park visitors have been here for years and years and years and know what trails to go hike and know what to bring with them. They were folks that were just trying to get out of their houses and, and get out for a hike and do something other than sit in their living room for one more day. So we've had to do a lot more education with that. We've seen our search and rescue calls change. And the places that we're finding people injured, the places that or the injuries that are happening are a little bit different. So I can't actually tell you right now the data supports that we are decreasing search and rescue incidents in this park. But I think it has, I think if we had not been here, there would have been a catastrophic increase. It's kind of what yeah. I can tell you. No, and, I, and I'm sure Mike would agree with me that the same thing, just from our perspective, because we don't really track the numbers per se for our park, just because of our status there. But Anecdotally, we have definitely seen reductions in some of the more common visitor complaints, simple things like, oh, I didn't bring water. I didn't have my light. Oh, that's one of those people catching them at the trailhead. It's like, 
you know, this is a fairly strenuous 12 miler. You think flip-flops was the right choice? Absolutely. And it's, Mike and I, we've been staged for certain operations at very popular trails waiting to continue a rescue thing and just watching the other visitors walk by and you're like, you know, and those people like, do you guys have water? We have a lot, but it's not for you. You know, it's like, (laughs) you started out with half a bottle of, of Dasani and your flip-flops and a cell phone because that was going to be your map and your light and everything else. And then you realized you didn't have cell service and it gets dark and this hike takes way longer than you thought it would because your boyfriend said it'd be fun and you didn't really understand what it was. So we know our PSAR guys have with their engagements helped out a lot with that. Right. But obviously they're not going to cure it all. Right. And I was raised in an outdoorsy family. My dad took me backpacking as a kid. We went rock climbing, kayaking, all those things. We joined ski patrol together. He was what got me into rangering. And so I come with the, I mean, from a very young age, I remember bringing water and snacks and extra clothing, all those things with me. And I forget that other people haven't had that education. And so it's easy to get frustrated and say, I mean, come on, how'd you not know to bring water? But a lot of folks (laughs) don't come from an environment or a background where that's a need for them on a daily basis. And so it's really important for us to step back and recognize the value of having that moment with them. And this may be the first time in their life they've ever oh. heard that Converse's aren't the shoe to go on a hike in. And, yeah. <laughs> and if they have a different shoe to change into, it might be a better choice. Yeah. I, no, I and I think Converse on the regular. Fine. <laughs> I, we rescued a kid in vans a couple of weeks back yeah. uh, who's having a, a medical emergency. And I think it was because they were so exhausted from hiking in vans. Um, well, and not and all the snotty people out there with the tactical vans. I'm not talking about those. They were like van sneakers. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, so think, as long as they're camo, you're good. Is that like, <laughs> as long as they're multi a hiking book. Yeah. So yeah. I was recently introduced to Vans tactical shoes. Apparently that's a thing now. And a yeah. lot of cops are wearing Vans tack shoes. I had no idea that, that was a thing. They're actually really good looking. I'd buy a pair, but I don't need well, I might because I actually need some new boots, but we'll see. But this reminds <laughs> me be back to what we were discussing there. I almost lost my train of thought. Because similar to you, Liz, right? So I grew up in Colorado. I grew up just in the mountains all the time, right? It just, it was just life for me. And I think you see a lot of visitors and where we're at, we consider it really what we'd call like a day use park. People don't really have to road trip for days to come visit us, right? It's within a few hours of major metro areas. And when they just look on the trail thing, go, oh, three miles, that's not so bad. But they don't appreciate the, did you read the strenuous part about major uphill rock scrambles, et cetera. And I think that's where the PSAR people make the money is like, hey, before you take grandma up this, do you understand that this is not just a flat three miles of dirt where you can look at deer and squirrels? You yeah. know, a lot of people right. don't appreciate the terrain factor or, and for us, we, well, you guys get it too, right? So that mid-Atlantic summer humidity and heat that, yeah. hey, this is my first time ever hiking out here on the East Coast because I normally, you know, I live in Wisconsin or Northern Michigan somewhere and I don't get weather like this. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, I'm doing seven miles at 98 degrees with 100% humidity. And this is horrible. So I think that right. educational piece is absolutely important. And I know it's, it's helped us some, but uh, we don't want to tell too much because that takes the fun out of our work. But you know how that is. Our, the elevation profile map that we have is one of the more powerful tools um, to give people a visual on what the ups and downs actually look like on the trail. Mm-hmm. And I give my husband a hard time. He's from Minnesota and he's our one of our backcountry rangers here. And when we first showed up, he's like, those aren't mountains, those are hills. And I was like, because you're coming from Montana. And I was like, mm, actually, no, they are mountains. And after the first couple of days and he was out hiking in the backcountry, he was like, oh, this is miserable. Like, this, these are mountains. This is terrible. Like, I know. Yeah. I was raised here. I know. So. Yeah, no, that's what Mike and I joke. Everywhere we go up in the backcountry, our park goes uphill. Doesn't matter if you're coming or going. Uphill. 
it's always yeah, uphill. It's always uphill. And yeah. yeah, what people don't appreciate is like, no, I mean, the park does not peak out very high, you know, like 3,000, 4,000 feet, something like that. But it's like, it's the elevation gain. And it, a lot of times it's fairly steep on some of our trails. Yeah. And people don't appreciate that. It's like, oh, it's not that high. No, it's, it's not the Rockies. It's not the Sierras. But there is a significant amount of elevation gain you can make on some of these hikes. And most of them go fairly steep up or down. And then, you know, if you hike down to some of these beautiful areas, oh, let's go see the waterfalls. Well, you got to come back right. up eventually. So, Right. And our tread surface is one of the things that really challenges people. They're used to walking on pavement. That's totally smooth. And mm. now we've got roots and rocks and water bars yeah. and steps and all the things. And that wears people out. And they don't really appreciate that until they've actually been out hiking on that surface. And that was something out West, like in Yosemite, all of our rocks or all of our trails were like super smooth, you know, and you had really nice steps to get up everywhere. Mm -hmm. like it wasn't roots and rocks, but out here, just with the nature of the soil and, and the topography here, it, you just can't do that. So, yep, yep. It's a, yeah, it's a so different environment. needs to up its game is what you're saying. <laughs> Better trail maintenance. <laughs> we need better oh. dirt. So if we can switch out the dirt, we'd be fine. Good or dirt. <laughs> All right, Liz. So anything besides you getting a better staffing, which personally I think is amazing. And I know you've tried to get me to come out there and work for you, but you can't afford it. Come on me. out. We're hiring. Uh, anything else new you guys got coming on the horizon with your program? Yeah. So prior to my arrival here, running the EMS program had always been a collateral duty. And it was a challenge because these folks just didn't have the time to allocate to getting into the weeds on the details of our, our operation. So we have, since I've been here, uh, brought on new protocols that encourage an expanded scope of practice from what they were using previously. And so we have a lot more interventions in the backcountry. Um, we can provide a higher quality of care. And then we've also focused on the gear that we were using. Again, I had this job in Yellowstone and so I had some background in buying for a larger agency and understood some of the products that could assist us to do our job more effectively in the backcountry. And I've also reached out to other folks in the local EMS communities here to better understand what tools work well for us. So um, we've bought very small cardiac monitors that we can use in the backcountry. They're currently three leads. Um, hopefully we'll be upgrading that soon. Um, but we have three lead cardiac monitors. We have in-title capnography. We have oxygen saturation. We have blood pressure cuffs all in this one little device. And the great part about it is that I can actually be 100 feet back from the patient. They're rolling the litter ahead of me. I'm standing behind them on my cell phone and I can take a set of vital signs even without cell service. And it's amazing for patient monitoring and the quality of care that I can provide to that patient. That's been a, a big improvement. And then again, it allowed us to expand our scope of practice because now we have better monitoring capabilities to understand what's going on with them. So we focus on uh, that tool and, and several others as well, kind of more on the search and rescue side of things to make sure that our equipment was light, was not, not cumbersome to work with, make sure that all of our providers are proficient in using the tech rescue gear that we now have. So making their lives a little bit easier. So uh, improved protocols and then really focused on our gear and our scope of practice as well. Nice. Very good. Liz, okay. you've said it a couple of times now. What's a collateral duty? Oh, see, I apologize. I forget when I'm using <laughs> jargon. So, I mean, that, that one listener we have in Europe somewhere is going to be like, I don't know what that is. Absolutely. So collateral duties. So we are all police officers primarily. Like if you look at my job description, I am 51% of my time, I'm a police officer. So you guys can't see me, but I'm sitting here in full duty gear with my gun belt on and my vest on. So that is my She's primary very job. very menacing looking. <laughs> um, I don't know about that, but so that's our primary job responsibility. And then we have these other little jobs that get tacked on to what we do in our day-to-day -day lives. So all of our law enforcement rangers are also EMTs. 
and uh, at least an EMT, if not a higher scope of practice or scope of care. So we're also EMTs. We're wildland firefighters. We are, depending, some of our folks folks choose to be part of our technical rescue team, choose to be part of our swift water team, choose to do a variety of different things. And so all these little tack on jobs to what we do on our primary job is called a collateral duty. So that's kind of the quick breakdown of that. Yes, it is. And (laughs) so, so we'll talk a few operational things right now. As a generic, what would you say your average backcountry call for EMS services or rescue is nature of injury type of thing or illness? Yeah. So the vast majority of our calls are what we call slips, trips, and falls. So it's literally the folks that have caught the tree root walking down the trail and have fallen down. And typically it's a lower extremity injury. So something from the hips down. So a fractured ankle, twisted knee, tons of ACLs, hip tip fibs, all the kind of lower extremity injuries is our bread and butter all day long. So I don't know how many broken ankles we do every year, but it's a lot. So uh, slips, trips, and falls is well over 50% of our call volume here in the park. And then have a variety of other challenges as well. Obviously, medical conditions get exacerbated when you go hiking as well. But most of our visitors are, are day hikers, so don't have a ton of overnight uses. That being said, we do have the Appalachian Trail that comes to the park. So mm-hmm. for those of you who are not familiar, it's a 2,000-mile trail that goes along the east coast of the United States. And we are about week two into that hike. So depending on the average hiking speed. So we've got the folks that haven't quite dropped off yet, but maybe are in over their heads. And so we have a lot of the overuse <laughs> injuries starting to develop by the time they get to the Smokies. And yeah. I mean, right now we've got, what we're going to call it a GI bug going around oh, the trail because nice. hygiene. Very nice. Yeah. Because hygiene is not quite what it would be in a typical environment. That means, so, that, um, that so. Means- it's coming out one end, both ends. Like how bad uh-huh. are we talking here? All the things. Okay. Sweet. So to the point Don't that I... Don't drink the water, folks. Don't drink the water. What, if you could just wash your hands, we'd be good to go. But it's to the point that I pulled out all the Tyvek last week because it's it's getting serious up there. So, so yeah. So just personal hygiene is lacking. So we end up getting GI bugs. There's there's a certain season that it happens every year up on the Appalachian Trail and, and we're in it right now. So yeah. Good for you. Yeah, what's... We don't... Well... The the only people we get called to for the AT are the ones that the slip strips falls people, the overuse injuries. Yep. Occasionally we've gotten to some people that are just feeling ill that we've had to take a look at. But we don't get a lot of we haven't seen I don't think we've ever seen really the GI issues with us. That, at least not that we've responded to. It's kind of like, cool, here's some emodium, my friend. Good luck, gut speed. <laughs> wash your hands. Yeah. Wash your hands and please don't touch anything. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not, I mean, it, it, we really do end up getting into like public health here. Um, yeah. We have these outbreaks and we end up kind of becoming public health officials to help in curtail this, this spread because we literally could see it coming. We knew that it was evolving in Georgia and then we started, started seeing it at our Southern shelters and now it's starting to move on up North. So, um, right, so we should be on the lookout then, huh? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, hopefully nice. it, it sounds like it's maybe getting a little bit better this week, but yeah, not ideal. All right. It's not a good way to spend your through hike. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I can't imagine. So, all right. So how long would you say your average backcountry again, EMS and rescue calls last? So the sh- on, your, yeah, your quickest yeah. and your longest. So on average, our backcountry search and rescue times is six hours. So that's the mm-hmm. time from when we receive the phone call until we get the patient at the trailhead. So that does not include the time that somebody had to go to cell service. So some, somebody falls yeah. down and gets injured. They have to send a member of their party or another good Samaritan down the trail, however many miles to their car to go drive in their car to the point that they get cell service, then call us. That's when the clock starts. 
So it could have already been several hours before we get that phone call. So, but from the time that we get the phone call until the time we get the patient at the trailhead, it's typically about six hours. That being said, I mean, we had one two weeks ago that was a 30 hour, 30 hour search and rescue incident up on Mount LaPont. And uh, that ended up being a ischemic bowel uh, issue. And that patient had a significant surgery on their, their, and lost a a chunk of their bowel. That's bad, right? It it turns out, turns (laughs) out that's not really ideal. And we were having trouble getting helicopters in and all the things. So yeah, so uh, that our provider spent the night providing care um, for that patient. So that's not common, but it happens a time or two a year. Yeah. Um, and then obviously we have our extended backcountry searches as well. And we have one that mm-hmm. just went on for 11 or 12 days. So it just depends on the, the takeaway from that. Yeah, no, that's sounds pretty common with a broad area. Like for us, if it's actually a legitimate down trail somewhere, it's usually no faster than about a four hour event. And again, that's the from time of call until we get them out with an average of between six and eight because some of the places. And then I think Mike and I, the longest we've ever had to do with a patient is like 18 some hours. Yeah. 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 That sounds about right. I mean, I'm sure they get longer, but no, yeah. Yeah. If the public understood how long it takes for us to get them back out, they might make different life choices. Because there's an expectation that they can just call 911 and somebody appears like they do it in an urban environment. They've never thought about what does it look like when this Mm -hmm. happens six miles down the trail. And that's that's an involved endeavor. No, and that's exactly, and that's one of the things, one of the tenets we always preach about on the show is, is this the tyranny of time and distance piece is it's, it's not just 911 and within eight minutes, you've got an ambulance rolling up to your house or wherever you're at. This could be several hours before you get, even depending on the park you work at, yours is a little bit different hours, but your first person on scene might just be a backcountry patrol ranger who maybe has a wilderness first responder, you know, and then it's like, okay, they can get there and they can do an initial assessment force and say, yeah, this definitely looks like it might be a broken, whatever it is, or they're definitely not walking. And then, you know, to start the big show and get everybody moving. But I don't think, yeah, everybody understands how long it takes. And like we've right. had, uh, I think, well, probably the last, well, at least one of them, one of the last patients we had, we had to overnight with. It was definitely one of those. It was later in the day when we got there, did the evaluation. They couldn't walk and was like, okay, so how do we get down? It's like, well, you're going to get a cool ride in the morning. But the good news is, is you're going to get your very first camping trip in the backcountry. Exactly. And we have, we've helped several people on their very first camping trips because they didn't anticipate having to stay overnight because a lot of our trails, depending on the weather and time of year, there's a lot of risk to the rescuers to try and carry somebody out across some of the rocks and the terrain that we have. And right. so we generally wait till first light to either begin the carry out or this person got a helicopter ride because, you know, one of the local agencies was willing to come and hoist them out and fly them to the hospital, um, right. which and, much uh, quicker some- for them, but. They don't anticipate the, I might have to stay overnight for this. Yes, you might. Or I'm going to be in this basket for six hours. Yes, yes, you are. Go to the bathroom now. Right. And something that we're doing to try and address our initial arrival time is we are actually implementing a pilot program here in the Smokies for using e-bikes in the backcountry. Yeah. So uh, we just went through the training a couple of weeks ago, and I'm, I think I'm still sore from that. But um, <laughs> it was a five-day training where we're using electric mountain bikes with a trailer attached in the backcountry to just get a provider on scene and get a better scene size of what's the appropriate tool for this? Um, how urgent is this? Because as we all know, in EMS, whether you're urban or not, what's actually dispatched is has minimal <laughs> correlation to what you find. I mean, there was yeah. an incident last year where I had a guy with a dislocated shoulder and it came in as dislocated shoulder. 
great. Okay, fine. I'm walking. I'm coming. I'll be there in a little bit. Uh, he's about three and a half, four miles in. And then all of a sudden he's unconscious, unresponsive with a head injury with that injured shoulder. And I was like, Oh golly. Um, okay. <laughs> now I'm running up the mountain to get there and, you know, try to get this guy an airway and whatever else. And I started running into people on the trail that had seen him. And I was like, what happened? And they're like, Oh, well, he gets woozy when he stands up. And I was like, this is different than unconscious, unresponsive because of pain when you stand up is different than unconscious, unresponsive. Okie dokie. Like, all right, back to walk. So if we could just get somebody on scene to figure out what the heck it is that's going on, then we can make an informed decision about how many people are we sending out there. We, like every other EMS agency in the country right now, are short-staffed. And so we can't just be sending resources anywhere hoping for the best. Our litter teams typically take 12 to 14 people. So I can't just pull 14 people off of their their day job to go send them out in the backcountry. So really excited about the potential of e-bikes in wilderness where we worked through all the paperwork to get that approved for the Wilderness Act compliance and uh, are doing that pilot project here in the Smokies. And hopefully it's currently geographically bound to a small area and hopefully we'll expand that out to the whole park um, once we get the results of this, this pilot project. Yeah, I think that's really neat. I mean, man, if you've got the park and you've got the trails that can support that kind of of mobility, that'd be fantastic. It'd be way better than walking, let me tell you. Oh, absolutely. There's nothing more just heartbreaking than walking down an old logging trail that's like 15 feet wide going, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> I could be doing anything else other than walking right now. So yeah, yeah the e-bikes are pretty sweet. Yeah, so yeah, we've, we've got the UTV, but it's only got like three or four fire roads it can get down. Yeah. <laughs> Those are never yeah. where the rescues are that we really need it. Uh, right. So yeah, having and, an e-bike that's a little more mobile and get down those narrower trails, that would be fantastic. Yeah, and because most of the park is uh, proposed wilderness. So we are bound by the Wilderness Act of 1964. So we have to be really mindful of when we use the UTV and mm-hmm. recognizing that the e-bike is lower impact on the soundscape, the viewscape, all the different things, the trail surface, that's really helpful. And mm-hmm. then we also have to recognize it's a different tool though, right? Because we can yep. drive people out on the UTV and we cannot do that with the e-bike. The e-bike yeah. is really just getting stuff there. Um, yeah. And then we like lock the e-bike up and leave it and we'll come back and get it the next day because the <laughs> chances are that that bike rider is going to be pulled into service on the litter. So right. um, that's the plan for right now. Yeah, that's good though. So it's Would fun. You... It'll be fun. So what you're saying is there's some e-bikes for sale. In... <laughs> I... Not yet. I'm waiting <laughs> for the, the day when that happens. It's going to be a really okay. sad day. <laughs> Yes, but yes, it is. It's going to be pretty easy to catch whoever decides to snag it, though, because <laughs> it's going to be pretty obvious. The only person walking out of the wilderness area with a bike. <laughs> this would be true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so for your backcountry, how far on average are they out in the backcountry for you guys? A couple miles, 32. I know it varies, but. Yeah, I wish I had like a definitive answer about the distance from the trailhead. I don't have a good answer for you on that. Yeah, I would say it's general three to four. Um, yeah. would be the, we have the outliers, but they're typically three to four or less yeah. for us. Now, and it's very similar for us too, just because we have a, the nature of our park, it's very narrow and it's yeah. very steep. So a lot of the, the trail loops, they loop around and they might, most of the popular trails are six, eight miles long. So depending on where they are on that loop, it's pretty easy to find which way is going to be the quickest way to access them. But then it, it goes back to like we discussed in the beginning that literal game of telephone of no they're here because there are several places that have we call known landmarks on the trails if you if you know what you're talking about on that trail it's like oh they're at the lower falls are they because i just walked by it (laughs) you know it's one of those right and so yeah 
descriptions of where people are at is such a yeah and that's something that's changing too with all the satellite capabilities coming to cell phones now the iphone 14 is out there now with satellite capabilities on it android is coming out with their competing product here in the next couple months we have a ton of people out there with in reaches and spot devices mm-hmm. and other stuff like that pros and cons to all of them because i can tell you right now that our call volume is going to increase as this technology becomes more and more available because the folks that might have just been helped out by another member of the public or folks that maybe were on the fence about do i call or do i not mm-hmm. oh it's going to be a thing to get somebody down to the trailhead to drive to go make the phone call and waiting several hours is a big commitment and i'll probably just hike out we're now going to get those notifications from the new technology. That being said, we did have our first uh, iPhone activation in the park and the location was super helpful. And a call that we would typically have only resourced one or two people to because it was an injured lower leg was the way it originally came in when it came in over the radio because somebody had hiked down, driven, gotten mm-hmm. cell service and called us. And it was injured lower leg injury on a 15 year old male. I was like, okay, uh, sure. Kid twisted his ankle, no problem. We'll send somebody out there to go check it out. We found out it was a complete tip fib based on the iPhone communications back and forth and went, oh, okay, you know what? Instead of just sending somebody out there to check it out, here, let's go ahead and send the full litter team. And we resourced that a lot quicker and got him them out and then actually had a legitimate data point and like a GPS location for where I'm sending my responders to. So I knew how to prepare them when they went to the field and knew how long it was going to take to get there. So that was really good data for us to have, good proof of concept. And I think it's only going to increase from here on out. So like, capabilities are going to be the norm moving forward so yes yeah, so i know we've had a couple of alerts for usually it's the at through hikers a spot or similar personal you know emergency beacon has gone off one or two of those have been like oh my bad wrong button yeah um, but yeah occasionally it's been the guy who's actually taken a little bit of a fall or was super dehydrated but right yeah, i used to uh, have an internship in california that was a conjunction between uh spot and the state of california and I did all the mapping, the GIS mapping for the activations for spot devices back in 2008. And at that point in time, the vast majority of them were in sports stores because people didn't know what pushing the button meant. So <laughs> fortunately, us, they generally understand what pushing the button means. And we've also changed how some of these devices are structured. So it's a little bit harder to push the SOS button. Yeah, yeah you have to be very deliberate with the actual call for help. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. All right. So next one. As you've mentioned in your park and just about every other park out there, uh, I won't say you're short-staffed, even though you generally are short-staffed. So when it comes to the call-outs, how do you implement and use volunteers? Do you guys augment with volunteers or do we you do. really try to stay internal? I think it just depends on what the skill set that is needed. We had a significant ground search that wrapped up a couple of weeks back and we had over 300, I believe, responders to that incident. And there comes a point where I just need somebody to be able to walk around and look for clues. And that doesn't require being an employee of the park. But there are some skill sets like our tech rescue team. I really need these folks to be dialed in and attending regular trainings and being part of our team. We can't just have anybody show up and rig a system and call it good. (laughs) So um, that's not going to end well for anybody. So it just depends on what the needs are. In the past, we had leaned a little bit more on volunteers, but we're fortunate enough now to be uh, funded at a point that we can professionalize it and lean a little bit more on the staff. Hopefully that will be coming online soon to run those calls for us. So it's kind of a mixed bag and it just depends. And it depends too on who the volunteers are. So if, like we had here in the Smokies, he's now with you guys, Nick Hugh Paramedic, who was available regularly. His, his response time was pretty minimal. 
and he was a volunteer with us. And if there's a pediatric call, there's no other human on the face of the earth that I'd rather be out there with than Rusty Miller because he's amazing. So it just, it really depends on their skill set, their availability, their training availability, all, all kinds of things like that. So I wish I had a clear answer for you, but it just depends. No, no. Yeah. I mean, that's a valid point. I mean, your park is a unique park, just like all of them have their own unique needs. I would almost say it's very similar with where Mike and I are at. We do have most of the EMS program is volunteers for our park and we staff up primarily for their busy weekends throughout the busy season. Uh, And then essentially all of us in theory are all available as we'll call it, you know, to call out for other events as necessary. Those, those don't happen all that often. They are occasional. And usually when those do it's those larger actual ground searches. Yeah. And we'll end the park will end up calling in the, some of the local actual search and rescue teams from the area, and they provide their trained ground searchers for those events. And when it comes to the EMS calls, it's really limited to the handful of of known volunteers that they have within the park already. And I would say pretty much the same with our park's tech rescue team as well. There are a couple of volunteers on that team. You know most of them. I do. (laughs) And yeah, for the most part, it, it is the the duty rangers, just like, because like you said, that you have to maintain a certain level of, of professionalism or proficiency. And for many of the volunteers coming for regular training and staying proficient is difficult. I mean, for us, our local large community or our closest large local community is over an hour away. And mm-hmm. so if we have a tech rescue, it's typically due to a motor vehicle collision and a car is off the road and there's traumatic injuries. And we can't like sit around and hope and wait that people clear from work get in their cars, drive over an hour, get here, then set, like, it, it just doesn't work. We, we've got to make it happen <laughs> faster than that. So yeah, um, no. that's one of our limitations as well. Yeah, no, and I would say that's the same way. I know even if we've had medical calls where they've, like one of those on our, some of our bigger, deeper carryouts where it's going to be a several hours call out, when they will call for additional search and rescue resources, some of those teams will come in and they might not even get on trail and meet us until we're almost sometimes three quarters of the way back, which hey, we're very happy to hand over a litter with a 250-pound patient at that point. Absolutely. Um, hey, you got the heroes thing. You can get the pictures as you're coming in. Look good. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's the, it's the, it is. There's a lot of it that's a timepiece. I know a lot of volunteers would like to be more active in our area, sure. probably in yours too. But it, yeah, the reality is, okay, if I put out the call now, most of you have a two-hour drive after you've assembled your stuff. So I'm looking at maybe a three-hour response is it really worth trying to call you out to get a couple of you here that now also have to hike two hours down trail? You know, where am right. I going to be at in this rescue by the time you actually get here? So right, yeah, exactly. something I think that planners definitely need to be aware of. Don't just, I mean, I would never say hesitate and don't call them if you don't think it's going to be happening. But I mean, Mike and I, we both used to be our volunteers for another team and we have both been halfway three quarters pulling into the parking lot of a search operation. And then they find, Hey, we've got the subject search is over. Yeah. And it's like, damn it have to turn around, drive back home. It happens. It happens all the time with us. And our saying is, you know, order early, order big. So the most number of resources you think you might need for this incident, go ahead and get it rolling your way. Because again, that response time is so long that if you have any inkling that you might need it, just go ahead and order it. Absolutely. And and we can always stand you down. Yep. What do you got, Mike? I know you got something in there. I see it brewing. (laughs) Not everyone operates that way, but it's a good model. I'm really curious about the future of rescue. Like, do you think this is, it, it's a known quantity, right? And I'm, we're primarily focused on EMS, but concept of volunteer EMS agencies has been shrinking over time, yes. right? Is that going to apply to the wilderness as well? Like, how do we address that problem as a community? I'd be inclined to believe so. 
I, I started off my career as a volunteer ski patroller back in high school at, in Catalina, North Carolina. And looking at the number of volunteers there and the time commitment and looking at the ages of the folks around me that were able to volunteer. The younger folks don't have time. I've got two little kids. I can't step away from my life and just go take whatever call I want to take. The time commitment is not there. And then the culture change has happened. Our country now has a different culture than it did 20, 30 years ago, where we expect to be reimbursed for the work that we're doing. And there's pros and cons to all of that. I'm not going to like wade into that, but I have certainly seen it in my time in being a leader that I used to see more volunteers out here. And now there is an expectation of some sort of reimbursement when folks come out. So, I mean, that's just like the getting the people there aspect. Then I also see increased complexity in EMS, SAR, FIRE, all of it. EMS, I, I was cleaning out my office the other day and found some files and found the old protocols from 1994. And the <laughs> protocols in 94, I mean, they were just shy of an AHA first aid class, right? And this is what the EMT level was providing. I mean, the protocols mm-hmm. were like, I don't know, eight pages deep. Now mm-hmm. they're like 200 some odd pages deep. So I now require my staff to be well-versed in 250 pages of EMS protocols. So, I mean, that's become more complex. The patient care charting has become more complex. And now I'd get into EMS charts and I have to teach you how to use that software program. Technical rescue used to be kind of a little bit cowboy and we just throw some ropes over and hopefully (laughs) maybe three to one and made it happen and it's all good. But now we have some really complex systems that we're rigging that again, require additional competency checks and training and things like that. So asking a volunteer to maintain proficiency in all these different skill sets is a huge ask. So I think because of the world in which we live with everything becoming more and more complex and more and more detail oriented, we will see less and less volunteerism and more compensated professional positions. I think there is a growing understanding that this is the way that we have to go. And even if it's not the entire team being compensated, I think we'll see more of the model that a lot of rural EMS and fire departments have gone to where we have like a couple paid shift leads or what I like staff members and then a couple more volunteers that are just kind of the grunts there. So yeah, to, to answer your question, I do think that we are moving in a direction of, of professionalizing. All right, Liz, this is going to be my last question, I know. And this is not a trap, I swear. And you'll understand when I ask you the question, why I'm saying that. So a lot of our listeners don't understand park service, particularly their EMS stuff. Would you please talk about the park medic program and what a park medic is? Because a lot of people hear a park medic and the assumption automatically is you're an MPS paramedic. Mm -hmm. And that's really not the case. So if you'd like to talk about what a park medic is, because like I said, we have a lot of listeners that aren't all involved with NPS folks and they don't understand. So give us the rundown, please. Absolutely. So the park medic program, and as a former park medic, the park medic program has a special place in my heart. It has less of a special place in many people's hearts, but a park (laughs) medic is, I I know, I know. It's a highly controversial thing out there, but I am not on team Damcot on this one. I am full team park medic. So a park medic is an expanded scope, advanced EMT. There is a program put on at uh, University of California, San Francisco's campus in Fresno, California, which is confusing. At that medical school, there is a six-week program that is put on every other year where EMTs from across the park service come together and are trained to become advanced EMTs with an expanded scope of practice. So they are taught by physicians. I will tell you right now, I went to both park medic and paramedic school. Quality of instruction that I received at park medic school is light years ahead of what I ever received at paramedic. The only reason I was able to get through paramedic was because of my park medic training. That's a story for another day. 
So they are instructed by the physicians for the six weeks that they are there at the medical school. And it is a reflection of the unique needs of the National Park Service. So you're trained not only in advanced EMT skills, but you're also trained in high altitude medicine because I worked in Alaska, I worked in Denali. High altitude medicine is absolutely a thing there. We are trained in envenomations of, of urchins and jellyfish and all that kind of stuff because we have sea-based parks that need EMS care. So you're trained in that kind of wilderness environment. We are trained how to do a lot more interventions than most AEMTs are. I came back to Alaska after going to Park Medic and I showed up with this great huge scope of practice. And I went to our, our local EMS agency and I was like, hey, I'm here, I'm certified, I'm ready to go. And they told me the seven meds I could push when I'd just been trained in 31 <laughs> medications. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. I can only do what now? You only want me to start a line and that's pretty much it? Okay, that, that was a hard pill for me to swallow. And so there's it's just this huge scope. So there's pros and cons to it. You're throwing a ton of information. It's pretty much paramedic light. You do everything a paramedic does minus the cardiac interventions. And even some of the cardiac interventions you do just a little bit differently because you don't interpret rhythm strokes. So there's pros and cons. You do not have the opportunity to fully understand the physiology and anatomy that you are taught in paramedic school. That being said, most of the incidents that we deal with in the park service are traumatic based. And we do just need pain management and basic good quality BLS skills and pain management on top of that. And you get that at park medic. So that's what the park medic program is. I believe in it. We have park medics here in the Smokies. Um, we also have advanced EMTs here in the Smokies. And it's been a point of conversation about what the scope of practice is for these two different programs, because going through an advanced EMT program is a very different thing than going through Park Medic. So that's been a topic of conversation here. Yeah, I know there used to be, until the new protocols came out, there was some consternation if you had an AEMT vice a Park Medic, because the old protocols didn't reference AEMTs. So there was, I know there's some issues with, I know, and again, this varied by Park, but certain medical directors like, well, I don't even see an AMT in here. Like, what are you allowing them to do? And right. the park EMS coordinators had to decide what of the park medic scope they were going to allow AEMTs to do and such. And so I know there are some issues. And somebody and, who was involved heavily when rewriting the new protocols made sure there was some stuff in there, which was probably know, a nice thing imagine, to do. I can't imagine who that might have been. Uh, <laughs> so the new protocols are heavily based off of the ones that were developed uh, with Carrie Giles a Yellowstone paramedic and myself and Phil Basak, who is also an emergency management position in Yellowstone and obviously a, a whole slew of other people involved. But that was the foundation for the new protocols that have just been adopted by the National Park Service. We hired 15 seasonal EMS staff members at varying skill levels. And it was a point of consternation whether AEMTs were at the same scope of practice or not as a park medic. And so we that was one of the things that we addressed in the new protocols that we provided to NPS and that are now in the national policy. So yeah, it's a challenge. It's they're two different certifications. I wholeheartedly believe they are two different certifications. No, I would certainly agree with you there. I think my biggest complaint is they only do it every other year. They need more of them. Um, so there's been rumblings that such things might happen. Um, yeah. Like an or an East coast and a West coast. coast. Yeah. See, so, so anyway, yeah, all right, we'll Liz, anything else you'd like to discuss? Tell us about your park. Anything else? I'm hiring. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know when this podcast will be released, but hopefully within the next couple months or so, we will have job listings on USA Jobs. I'm looking for folks to live both in Tennessee and North Carolina. I'll have six positions available. Three of them will be AEMT or higher. This is the plan right now. Let me be clear. This is the plan. This is not definitive set in stone. This is the plan. Um, hopefully three of them will be AEMTs or higher and three of them will be EMTs or higher. So sprinkled throughout the park, all the way from Cades Cove to Oconaluftee over in North Carolina. 
uh, opportunities to live both either in Tennessee or North Carolina. So we are absolutely hiring and looking for high quality candidates who have the ability to be physically fit enough to walk in the backcountry and then have the EMS skills and capabilities to be able to provide patient care overnight and be a leader on that call and make some pretty significant decisions about how we're going to evacuate somebody. So um, if that's a job that interests you guys, I'd be more than happy to see your application come to the Smokies. Yeah. So, uh, and I'll talk with Liz after this, perhaps uh, on our social media stuff, when those job recs come out, we'll post a link to the USA jobs, job postings. Yeah. And yes. uh, so, so folks, I mean, this is a good opportunity for those that really want to get involved and be paid to do backcountry wilderness, EMS and search and rescue. Liz has got a good program. And this is one of those very few opportunities you have. So up your game, yeah, we'll, get out there. We'll be one of the largest programs in the National Park Service of its yeah. kind. So I'm super excited about it. You would get the opportunity to be part of a high-speed program that's still small enough to be pretty nimble and, and do some really high-quality trainings. And we have incredible field staff here. I, I've never seen a program that's more well-rounded than our field staff. And, and I had nothing to do with hiring them. I just inherited everybody. They're fantastic. So truly, it's, it's a pretty cool job to be in. I get to play outside and help people is, is yeah. all I know. So it's not a bad gig. No, that's a really good gig. All right, Mike, yeah. you have a, anything else? All right, Liz. Well, we really appreciate you coming on talking with us, discussing your job, what your park's been doing in this realm, uh, giving us a bit of insight into you know, some of the other in, NPS, EMS policies and processes that are going on out there in the growth of your park. We're very excited for you. And uh, one day, if I ever get desperate, maybe I'll quit my current job and go work for you. <laughs> <laughs> might be a little bit of a pay cut for you, but that's all right. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, I appreciate you guys bringing me on here and bringing awareness to what's going on in Smokies. It's, it's a cool place to work. All right, Liz. Well, we thank you. All right. Thank Thanks. you, guys. Yeah. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM. Or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.